Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I'm married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and and I'm in a different part of the country. I I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're really reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? Oh, yeah. Hey, I'm telling you, this is Carol Jurgensen. She's a.k.a. Carol the Coach. And, you know, I was telling Russell, you're not getting what you need. And the truth of the matter is you have to be able to assess what are your needs. Okay, so my need, as warm as it is tonight, my need is to turn off my air conditioner. I'm afraid that it's going to be too loud. And maybe you couldn't tell whether it was on or off, but that just makes me feel comfortable. And, you know, when I work with addicts or I work with their partners or I work with the coupleship, or family members, it is my job to make you feel comfortable. And what I know to be true is that that can be hard work. I'm going to give you some examples. In regular counseling, you typically don't work with the husband and the wife and the couple. You typically pick one and then you give the other partner or spouse to somebody else, and then you give the coupleship to somebody else. That means that it's very, very clean. And nobody feels like they're getting the shaft. Now, here's the bad news about sex addiction today, but I promise you it won't be like this 20 years from now is that there aren't enough certified sexual addiction therapists, uh, certified clinical partner specialists to go around. For instance, I'm the only one in Indianapolis who does this. So one of the things that I do is I offer to my, my person, whoever contacted me and said I want help, from the first session on, I say, I want to meet you both. Because I want that person to know that he or she is welcome to come with the identified patient to find out about me, to find out about my mode of operandi. So in other words, if the addict calls me and says, I'd like to work with you, I say, well, I would like you to bring your wife to the first session. Now, thereafter, she doesn't have to come. And if she chooses not to come, that is certainly her prerogative. But I want to give her that opportunity because I think this is such a devastating problem. I want to be part of the solution, and I want her to see that I get 
her pain. But the opposite is true. If I get a partner who says, I'd like to work with you, I say, and if possible, I'd like for your spouse, a.k.a. the addict, to come in too. Because I want him to see me. I want him to know who's working with his wife. That, that is if the addict is a husband and the wife is a partner. And I also want to explain brain science so that if she acts bizarre, if she's very aggressive, if she's doing things she's never done before, I want him to understand about a stress response. I want him to know she's not going crazy, but she is experiencing some post-traumatic-like features and that they're a result of being traumatized. So I was going to tell you that sometimes you just can't please everybody. For instance, I'm working with a man who has severely traumatized his wife. And he's working in really good recovery. But her belief is that he should kowtow to everything she says. He owes it to her. He has hurt her immensely, and it is time for him to do the hard work. Well, I don't necessarily endorse that. That's slavery. That's uh, total control. But you've heard me say it before. I do really believe that there is a power differential once discovery has occurred, and now the partner is in control. But that doesn't mean he has to do every single thing she says to prove that he is in recovery. So I'm working with this this husband, and I've done a disclosure with the couple. And, you know, we've referred her to somebody in a neighboring town, somebody I don't know, but it's a trauma therapist, and I know that this woman is horribly, terribly traumatized. Horribly. And so the first thing that the therapist says after she does the intake is, are you telling me that you went through a three-hour disclosure? Now, this woman admitted she really didn't understand disclosures, but when she heard about it, she said, that therapist was torturing you. She is wacko. She was torturing you. Now, see, I know that that therapist doesn't know what she doesn't know. And every betrayed partner, be it a male or female, gets the option, has the option of not wanting a disclosure. And that's fine. But the truth of the matter is when the partner asks for that, It is my job to provide a safe and therapeutic disclosure. And that takes a lot of processing and a lot of time. Okay. So um, now I've got a therapist out there that thinks I'm wacko and thinks that I've tortured her client. And to be real honest, at the end of that disclosure, this woman looked at her husband even though she's very mad at him today, hugely mad. But she said, I really do have compassion for what you've been through. She understood the timeline, and she was able to see um, the instability, the emotional abuse he had experienced, uh, the brain science that went behind it, and she realized that he couldn't help doing what he, he did until he got the tools. Once an addict gets the tools to do better, we expect them to do better. They may not know what those are, and that's why they can't do better. But trust me, once they get the tools, we expect them to use them. Well, I thought it was time for this woman to come in for a session to talk about her husband's progress. He's made good progress. 
There's things that I know she wants him to do differently. I wanted to talk about that, and I wanted to help them begin to heal as a couple, if possible. And if not, at least let her know that I'd be working with him on some of those things that she wanted him to work on. But she was having a hard day. And she told her husband, again, understandably, she told her husband that it was unethical for me to be working with him and expect her to be a part of any session. Now, see, I wasn't saying I want to do therapy with you. I was saying that I wanted to consult with you, find out what you thought we needed to work on, because this is a relational issue. I'm sure there are people out there listening who absolutely think, wow, I wish my therapist would do it that way. And then I bet there are other people out there listening going, oh, no, you got your hands in too many, too, too many of the fires. I do what I believe is in the best interest of my client, the coupleship, and the partner. But when I heard that she felt it was unethical, I said to the husband, the addict, I said, you know what, she has every right to have that belief, and it sounds like that's not going to be an area that we're going to be able to pursue. I'm good with that. I just wanted to offer that as an option. He looks so forlorn and so sad. He wants the relationship to work so badly. But I'm going to continue to help him do that, and hopefully one day it will pay off. Because that's what I believe about couples. When you do the next right thing, it may not look like it's working at first, but hey, it is the next right thing. Now tonight, i got to tell you, we've got a really exciting show. Because I have sex expert and certified sex addiction therapist and APSAT certified clinical partner specialist, Dr. Crystal Hollenbeck. And she literally wants to help couples go through that journey from unhealthy to healthy sexuality. And that's always a tough place to be, in part because, you know, the, the sex, well, sexuality within the coupleship has already been so violated that that can be a really tough area to repair. And so Dr. Crystal Hollenbeck has made it her mission to help addicts and partners heal and grow sexually on their journey through treatment for sex addiction therapy, as well as recovery and healing from betrayal trauma. And she's got a whole belief system, and I think you'll find it absolutely fascinating. Because let's face it, who do you talk to about sex? when you believe that you're ready to improve that, but you keep having images of who he or she has been with prior to. I mean, I just had a wife say today, he's not going to want sex with me because it's boring. It's normal. That's not what he did. I know I won't compare to his whores. And she said that, and I understood, but what I promised her is, that he wants intimacy. He didn't know intimacy. He didn't look for intimacy. And intimacy trumps sexuality when it comes to risque, taboo sex. Every time. It doesn't when you're in the throes of addiction, but once you get away from that and you've calmed down the brain and you've produced um, oxytocin as opposed to dopamine, and you've got that cuddle drug in you where you want closeness with somebody and intimacy, that trumps any kind of sexual acting out. But it does take a while in terms of creating that kind of intimacy because there's been so much betrayal. So I cannot wait for her to talk about, you know, what does healthy sexuality look like for a couple in recovery? And How do they go through that process when you're scared 
um, they're vulnerable. They don't want to risk. But they love each other. How does that happen? So Dr. Crystal Hollenbeck has made it her mission to, again, create a journey from unhealthy to healthy sexuality for sex addicts and betrayed partners. So, Dr. Crystal, welcome to the show. Good evening, Carol. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Glad to have you. So good to talk with you. I apologize. The last time we were going to talk, I ended up with a flat tire and uh, on the side of the road. So, I know. What was I saying? Well, we can do it from the car. I know. know, Carol's like, no, the show has to go on, right? (laughs) Oh, you know me. I'm always, the show has to go on. But I totally understood. You said it was really loud and you couldn't guarantee you were under a viaduct or something. It was horrible. So I'm excited to have you on now. And let me tell you why. It's so good to talk with you. So many people that are working on their recovery that work through that safety and stabilization and they worked through the grief and they're wanting to restore themselves and the coupleship. When they think about sex, they fall right back into safety and stabilization again. Well, they, they do. There are so many things, uh, so many aspects related to healthy sexuality for somebody who is in sex addiction treatment. And it impacts the, the addict and the partner sometimes in similar ways and then in a lot of different ways. You know, when they first, when discovery first happens, they're both in shock, right? Um, the addict is in shock because he's been caught usually. The partner mm-hmm. is in shock because she's finding things out. Um, You know, there's loss associated with it, and neither one of them are thinking clearly. And so right from the beginning, their sexual relationship starts to be confusing. Well, 100%. And so what do you advise them to do when they're at that point? Well, usually I say don't have any sex. You know, usually when you get into recovery, we do what's called 90 days of sexual abstinence. And that is not just from sexual activity for the addict, but it's also 90 days where the partner is not going to be able to engage with her husband. And so we're talking about the, just referring to the addict as the husband and the partner as the wife for the sake of our discussion tonight. But the person who's struggling with the addiction, he's coming into treatment, those 90 days of abstinence right at the beginning of treatment is really important for so many reasons. So we ask them not to have any sensual or sexual activity together, but we do encourage that they have physical affection if the partner feels safe enough to do that. So it's a great sacrifice for the partner too. And as you know, there's so many confusing things running through the partner's mind. Um, You know, if I don't have sex with him, is he going to act out? And sometimes she's so overwhelmed and she wants comforted that at times she just wants to have sex with him. Um, And then, you know, we have the tendency to want to have revenge sex for the partner because she's so hurt and you know, she wants to hurt him back sometimes. She wants him to feel her overwhelming pain. And so there's a temptation there to have revenge sex. Look what you've been doing. I'm just going to go out and have an affair. Or I'm going to go out and have a one-night stand. So there's all kinds of just upsetting, confusing feelings and emotions and thoughts about sex in general uh, at the beginning of treatment. Well, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that I know when couples are even considering it, it it really is about vulnerability. And they feel so vulnerable on so many levels. Um, They they don't think they're going to compare. A partner fears she won't compare to the taboo, risque sexuality that he experienced in the past. And, And 
when I talked to addicts, almost invariably, that sexuality was not very um, satisfying or exciting. As a matter of fact, after they get done, they say, I'm not going to do that again. So what do you tell couples when they're at this point, they've abstained for the 90 days, you encourage them to be physical. What do you you tell them um, after that? Well, there's a couple of things to keep in mind. Once we see a couple come through the 90 days of abstinence, that's where the addict has done 90 days of complete abstinence from all sensual and sexual activity. We also recommend staying abstinent from alcohol and non-prescription drug use as well. So during those 90 days, what's happening with the addict is he's no longer giving himself to anyone else but his wife. So he's ending relationships at the beginning of recovery. He's um, just, you know, actually suffering some loss, having to learn how to cope with things in a different way, getting educating, getting clear mind. Um, he actually becomes more attractive to his wife usually is what I see because he's not, his mind is clear. He's not giving himself to the addiction. And in those 90 days, he's getting help. He's getting support. He's getting educated. Once the 90 days are over, then we start to take a look at um, going forward. And what I always recommend to the partner is, you would never want to have sex with anyone you didn't feel safe with. So usually I say to my couples, we're going to start engaging in healthy sexuality when the partner feels safe. That's when the addict has been consistent and some trust has been built back. Both of them have had some trauma treatment. There's been consistency with sobriety. There's been accountability. So, you know, they're getting to a good place. Sometimes that takes a lot longer than the 90 days. But we let the partner usually gauge that for when she feels safe. And what we do, Carol, is we start helping the couple to communicate in a healthy way, to have relational intimacy. Sexual intimacy is part of relational intimacy, but it includes things like healthy communication, spending time together, where both people are valued in the relationship, where there's giving and receiving. There's a lot of work to do usually on the relationship itself. Um, But, of course, we know we can't do any marriage counseling until we have complete sobriety uh, and someone's in recovery. So we wouldn't even begin to talk about it until several of those things are taking place. Well, I'm glad that you really have them pace themselves and there there is a structure for them because I believe that really brings into play safety and stabilization too. So now I want to ask you, when do you believe the couple should have sex once that they are in treatment and they've abstained for 90 days? Well, As I was saying a minute ago, once the partner feels safe, so we really allow her to be the one to gauge. We like to start with physical affection and then perhaps ask her when we're ready if she could move forward to what else could we do this week. Perhaps we can kiss. Perhaps there can be some sexual touching or some massages, perhaps sleeping naked. Um, We start to progress with what she feels comfortable with, but we never progress until the couple is able to really talk about sex in a healthy way. So we want to bring that good communication that we're teaching them, and we want to start talking about sex before we start to have sex again. Well, that makes so much sense. And yet, Crystal, you know, one of the things that you and I both know is that it is so hard for couples to talk about sex. I mean, even before addiction, talking about sex can be really, really difficult. And so what would you advise to a couple that that needs to go through this process? Do they do that in the morning? Do they do that in the afternoon? I mean, do it before they're thinking about having sex? 
um, what provides the most safety for communication? Well, Carol, I'm sure you probably recommend some form of this as well, but I always recommend that the couple set aside 30 minutes every day or at least every other day. And then they're also going to be having a date night or a date time every week that they get to talk about themselves. They're not allowed to talk about work or kids or pets. And so we really try to mark out time for purposeful conversation on a regular basis. During these times, we've already worked on how to have healthy communication, how to talk about things that are uncomfortable, how to resolve issues together. And so we want to take those same great skills, and then we want to start talking about sexuality. That's going to include talking about fears, talking about some painful things. And, you know, along the way, the addict is really learning how to show empathy and the partner is really learning how to have a voice, to talk about things, to be open about how she's feeling. And we also want the addict to be open about how he's feeling. He has a lot of fears as well. And so as they start to talk about what they're thinking, what they're concerned about, we're also teaching them how to manage their intrusive thoughts. Again, the partner and the addict are experiencing a lot of the same emotions and challenges, but just with different material. So, for example, the uh, addict has to learn how to manage his intrusive thoughts about things he's filled his mind with, right? Uh, pornography, experiences, wording, um, images, habits, where the partner has to manage her intrusive thoughts about what's he thinking about? Am I enough? Did he do this with everybody else? Um, so she's going to have all kinds of thoughts, too, that are intrusive. So they both learn how to take care of themselves, manage their own anxious thoughts and their own intrusive thoughts. They learn how to be empathetic. Um, they also learn that it's okay. You know, I try to teach every couple, it's okay that it's not smooth. It's okay that it's uncomfortable. We're going to work through this because for the first time, a lot of times in the marriage, now we have a husband who is actually present and can be intimate because, you know, sex addiction is an intimacy disorder. So a lot of times the entire sexual life that this couple has had, he's never really been intimate and present. So there's just a lot of changes, things that are going to be different. They're going to be beautiful and wonderful, but it's going to take a little bit of a journey to get there. And the journey is okay. We just want them to really be communicating and talking openly about what they're feeling and what they're thinking. Well, yeah, and I hear you giving them a lot of permission to take it slow to be vulnerable, and to take the risk of finding out about each other as well as sharing their own thoughts. And you and I both know, again, that women oftentimes in deciding to be sexual do not want to be objectified. If I've heard it once, I've heard it a hundred times where a woman says, I do not want to be the vessel or the vehicle for more acting out. How will I know that I'm not triggering him? How will I know that I'm not initiating a fantasy that's going to go too far? So well, it's such a great question. You would encourage a partner to share those feelings and to be honest and open and, and to share her fears, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, those are good questions that the partners ask. They're real concerns and fears. And one of the things that I teach couples is not to make assumptions, right? So you want to really get out of that habit of saying in your head, I wonder what he's thinking. I wonder what he's doing. And really, we encourage each, each person to have their voice. So let's say the couple is starting to engage sexually and she really feels objectified. There's lots of different ways she can feel objectified. One may be that he keeps his eyes closed or 
maybe he's doing something different that she's not used to, or maybe she's just, you know, in her head feeling uncomfortable about herself. Like you said, wondering if he's thinking about somebody else or is he going to imagine someone else when he's engaging with me? And so that's where the CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy is very important. That really teaches both of them to manage those intrusive thoughts. So a thought may start to come in. You want to validate it. That's true. That may be happening, but I'm going to stay present. And the way you stay present is paying attention to your senses, smell, taste, touch, hearing, and you can bring that back in where you don't have to dwell on those thoughts. So way before the couple starts to engage sexually, right, we are teaching them, Carol as therapists and coaches, we're teaching our clients how to have healthy communication, how to manage their intrusive thoughts. And I always teach my couples, if something happens during your time of sexual intimacy, it's okay to stop and talk about it. It's okay to say, I'm really feeling objectified right now. Please stop. Maybe talk about it. Maybe make some changes and then continue. It's okay. Maybe you stop for the evening. But that you're both respecting each other and you know, that we are not making sexual intimacy about orgasm or penis performance, but we're really making it about two people enjoying each other's bodies, two people coming together, giving and receiving, two people that both feel valued, that both feel safe to have a voice. And so as they're learning to do that as a couple, doing it sexually will just be that automatic transition. Well, you know, I was talking earlier about the fact that I really believe that partners and addicts, when they're in good recovery, they want intimacy and they want the chemicals surrounding that. They don't necessarily need dopamine to feel good again. And so many people really don't know what intimacy is, and you just described it perfectly. Will you describe sexual and emotional intimacy one more time? Sure. Intimacy includes so many things. It includes, first of all, both people being valued. I'm important and so are you. It's both of us having a voice, both of us feeling safe to say what we enjoy, what we don't enjoy both of us feeling safe to explore and be curious together, both of us be feeling safe to have boundaries, to say what's acceptable or not acceptable, to say no, um, both of us getting to know each other on a deeper level, um, just that lack of taking responsibility for my partner's sexual satisfaction, you know, that's something important to learn. Because in addiction, there's so much objectification and it's goal-oriented, where in real sexual intimacy, um, we're not responsible for each other's sexual wellness. We're individually responsible for our sexual satisfaction. And the way that happens is by us having a voice, by us valuing ourselves and each other, by this close, intimate interaction that we don't do with anybody else. You know, it's the one thing that sets marriage apart. Everything else we do, we can do with anybody, really. You can raise kids, you can build businesses, you can do chores, you can travel, you can pretty much run a household with anyone. But this romantic adult sexual connection and intimacy is something that's very, very special. It should be on a deeper level, and it should be growing. Um, it should be growing throughout the lifespan. And, the, you know, the good news is that once an addict is in recovery and has the ability to be intimate and present, you know, I've had couples all the time say that their love life is just so rewarding and enjoyable and they feel so close and uh, they had never had that before recovery. thing about some of my clients is that
addiction. Um, I especially, I want to Carol, I apologize. I didn't hear what you said. And he had never been molested in his past, nor had he ever been a pedophile or molested anybody else. But there was something very sexual about this. And he found a partner that loved to play the boy. And they had a five-year relationship. And when the partner found out that he was a sex addict and that he was acting out all over the place, he initially stopped that behavior, but now that that his addict, his his spouse, is in good recovery, and he's been in good recovery for about a year and a half, this has come back into the relationship, and I actually discouraged it. I said, you know, this is. Did I stump you? You know what? I can hear you now. I could not hear what you were saying. Oh, okay. So I had a client, and um, he is in good recovery now, but he had actually participated in um, older man, younger boy role play with his partner. And so when it, when it was discovered that he was a sex addict, um, his treatment center and I said, that is not an acceptable way to role play anymore. Um, it, it brings into play some shame and some unhealthiness. Can you please um, figure out other ways to role play? Well, this man is in a year and a half of good recovery, and he's been with his partner for five years. They're married. And they keep getting drawn back into some of these old behaviors. What do you think? Do you think it's unhealthy for them to role play this um, taboo and risque and socially unacceptable um, role play? Well, that's such a great question. And there's so many different aspects and fetishes and experiences that uh, the individuals bring into their sexual relationship. What I recommend is that they have to have an open conversation that both people must feel comfortable and safe doing whatever it is sexually. So, for example, the way that I would approach anything that they're bringing up is, first of all, we want to make sure that you're not doing what we call trauma repetition, that whatever you're engaging in is based on some type of sexual abuse in your past or unhealthy behaviors. Um, But the bottom line is the two have to discuss everything that's going to take place. And my recommendation is that the only activities that they both engage in would be where they both feel comfortable with it, they're both willing to engage in it, and regardless of whether it's socially acceptable or not, the two of them have to decide that. But I do think there's a lot of aspects and more questions that I would want to talk with that couple about. What is that serving a purpose for you? Like you said, Carol, could you role play something else that wasn't part of your acting out behaviors? Do you think role play is appropriate at all? Um, Is it going to be the gateway to you um, going back to addictive behaviors? So there's so many questions around that healthy sexuality, but I agree with you that they have to be discussed openly. The different aspects of it has to be looked at. And um, a lot of times, you just can't go back to some of those behaviors. And um, your partner's not going to be accepting of them. And also, 
um, when you're engaging in some unhealthy behaviors or attending some places, you know, sometimes I have couples that in their marriage, they would attend strip clubs together or they would watch porn together or they would do uh, some things together where the partner thought that was healthy and everything was fine. And then it's very different once they both get into uh, recovery and they start to think about healthy sexuality and get educated on objectification and, you know, all the things that we learn about healthy sexuality. But the bottom line, Carol, is that to be a healthy couple, you both have to be valued, you both have to have a voice, and nothing is done without both people feeling comfortable, and there can't be any secrets. So if, if, a partner wants to, or um, an addict wants to do something and the partner says, no, I'm not comfortable with that, then it doesn't happen. Um, and of course, vice versa. So both people in a healthy relationship have to agree upon it and there has to be complete transparency without any secrets. And you know, it's part of sex addiction recovery. Addiction says, I'm going to do whatever I feel like. Healthy sexuality says, I'm going to live by principle, not by feeling. So I'm following the principle of what's healthy and what's valuing both of us instead of just what I feel like doing. Yeah, that's a very, very good point. And clearly, principles are so important in sexuality. You have to have a comfort level. And I always say when... When you've got somebody who has to determine their own decision-making based on their head, what they think, their heart, how they feel, and their gut, what they know, they should trust their gut most. Absolutely. You always go with your intuition. Your intuition is what tells you if something's off, something's not right. You might not be able to pinpoint exactly what it is, but... You know, you follow that old saying, when in doubt, don't. It might just mean that you need to have more conversation or you need to understand a little bit more about what's happening. Um, But that's great advice, Carol. Well, I wanted our listening audience, in case they turned in late, to know that we are talking with Dr. Crystal Hollenbeck. And you can look at her website, dot. Crystal, which is C-R-Y-S-T-A-L, Hollenbeck, H-O-L-L-E-N-B-E-C-K, dot com. Um, What will they see when they go to your website? What do you offer? Well, I um, treat the addict, the partner, and the couple who are in treatment for sex addiction recovery. And... um, I also do three-day intensives, which are very helpful for the couple, and then I also do a three-day trauma intensive. And I do trauma intensives for both the addict and the partner. I just finished one with an addict this week, and um, he really said to me when he was leaving, you know, oh, it feels so good to just feel like I've healed so many wounds. And we have to remember that, that both of you are wounded. Um, and so hopefully I can provide some healing through therapy modalities. I use several modalities such as EMDR, cognitive behavioral therapy, psychodrama, and art therapy. Um, and Carol, I just wanted to say one more thing as we're talking about healthy sexuality. I want to encourage everyone that you really can move from unhealthy to healthy sexuality And you really can get to a place that you're having fun, that you're having fun, that you're enjoying each other again, that you're feeling safe. The intrusive thoughts do dissipate. The safety does increase. The intimacy grows very strong. And so, um, you know, I just want to encourage them that there is light down the road of really enjoying healthy sexuality, but of course there's a recovery road to walk for that, and it does have some structure to it, and I do think you have to have some professionals that can help you on that journey. Well, and you are so um, educated. I mean, you are an ASEC. You um, are part of the Association for Sex Educators and Counselors, and so you deal with healthy sexuality, 
and then you're a CSAT, you know about sex addiction, you're certified for that, and then you're a partner-sensitive trauma specialist too. Tell us, if you will, is there a particular timeline that it takes somebody who has been a sex addict, who is in relationship, who is part of a coupleship, is there a, a certain amount of time it takes to get healthy and have fun-loving, healthy sex again? Well, you know, I wish there was a cookie-cutter answer for that, but unfortunately there's not. You know, every couple is different. Every couple has some unique challenges. But what we try to do is when you come into treatment, we try to get you started immediately, immediately with sobriety and a a recovery plan. We want you to have support from other people. We want you to be working the 12 steps. We're going to do your trauma recovery. We're also going to do a full disclosure followed by an exam, a lie detector exam. And then the partner is going to do the impact statement of how she's been impacted or he's been impacted. And then that's followed by um, an emotional restitution letter. And then over the first year, we have another uh, lie detector test in three months and in six months. And really, it doesn't need to take a long time for healthy sexuality because we can be in recovery and still be working on having a healthy marriage. So that doesn't mean that recovery still isn't very significant those first three years especially, but you don't have to be in a sexless marriage while you're in recovery. And I think a lot of people think that they do. I've had couples come to me um, and they think that, you know, we can't have any sex or engage for those first three years, and that's just not true. Every couple is different, but we want to get you on that journey as soon as possible. But we also have to remember that um, a healthy relationship is built on fidelity, honesty, and accountability. And so once we have those three things in place and the partner feels safe and the addict is really showing consistency in recovery, you know, we can start to talk about healthy sexuality and what that journey looks like. Yes, I absolutely agree with you. So, again, what I hear you saying is that anybody who's dealing with these issues really needs to be involved with a specialist, somebody who has certification in sexuality and also understands the addiction and partner betrayal models. Well, they really do, because I'm sure you've seen this, and I'm sure a lot of people listening to your show have experienced this. If you don't find someone who's educated and understands the sex addiction treatment journey for both the addict and the partner as well as the couple, then they're going to spend a lot of wasted time and I think are harmed in some ways because they're just meeting with therapists that mean well, but they're just not um, they're just not educated and trained to address these specific issues. And I've had that happen multiple times. I'm sure you have where uh, individuals and couples have come to us and they've tried to seek therapy and sometimes have gone to several therapists until they get someone who is a CSAT or an APSAT um, that are really able to understand what they're going through and get them on a scheduled program uh, for recovery. Well, and I really admire the fact that you do a good job. I know I've sent you people that you said, look, I need to do a thorough interview before I know if I can work with you. I'd like to talk with you both over the phone. You may need to come in and see me. We may need to do a face-to-face, and then I'll share with you my recommendations. So you really have to assess where they're at and where they need to be to do a good job. Yes, and, and, you know, just a reminder, as well as you know, that every individual is a is an individual, and every couple is an individual couple. So although we have the structure to what we're doing, if you're not meeting with somebody who's educated and well-versed in this process, um, they're not going to be able to individualize your treatment for you. And so yeah. that's why, um, you know, having those 
multiple resources. And, um, you know, in our field, you know, we stay connected. We encourage each other. We staff cases. We reach out for help for each other. And so that's another reason why it's important to get with a therapist who is certified not just a licensed therapist, but what are their specialties? Because within those certifications, we have other therapists that we talk with, that we, you know, we educate each other, we learn from each other. Um, we're all pouring into our community um, and into this profession to be able to help these couples be successful. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Dr. Crystal Hollenbeck, thank you so much for your words of wisdom today. Again, I want to remind everybody, you can visit her website at www.crystalhollenbeck.com. Thanks for talking about sex because we don't talk about it enough. I know. So good to talk with you, Carol. Have a wonderful evening. Hey, you too. So, there we go. We definitely need to talk more about sex and we have to make sure that it's in a safe situation and wow that is so important we don't do enough of it and you don't need to read each other's minds um, she said it first and foremost don't make assumptions and just really do your absolute best to use your biggest sex organ the brain to communicate your thoughts, your beliefs, your feelings, and your fears. That will be the precursor for healthy sex after sexual betrayal. And as I say at the end of every show, there will only be one of you at all times. I want you to fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. And um, let's apply this to sex. Sex and intimacy go hand in hand. Work on that intimacy while you're working on sex. And I'll see you next week for more Sex Help with Carol, the coach.